Hello, everyone. Welcome back to BungaCast. Welcome back to the Reading Club. It's so nice to see you all, um, by which I mean specifically George and Phil. It's been a little while since we've done this. They've been away on holiday. And uh, well, so has BungaCast, as, as you'll have noticed, because we haven't put anything out for the past two weeks. But we're back now. Uh, the long August holidays, um, Italian style that uh, George and Phil have taken. Are uh, are now over, and it's it's back to the back to the drudgery of podcasting. Um, so um, this is the second part of theme two on cynical ideology, and here we're specifically looking at the question of trust through a reading of a chapter from Anthony Giddens' The Consequences of Modernity. We're going to come to that. I'm going to have more to say on that and introducing and, and setting up the whole discussion. Uh, but first, we have to deal with uh, the last episode and some questions and comments and criticisms uh, that you listeners had uh, in respect to that. Um, so to remind listeners, we discussed specifically cynical ideology and the first chapter from Slavoj Žižek's The Sublime Object of Ideology. Uh, so there was a couple of uh, questions and comments and points put out on the Patreon. I'm just grabbing two of them here, um, which present more direct criticism. So the first was from Jacob Cart. Uh, who found that our insistence on the emergency politics framing is leading us into some strange places. He Jacob particularly takes issue with Phil's response at the beginning in which he seems to deny that any objective emergency is actually possible, that it's purely somehow uh, socially constructed or, or a power grab by political actors. Um, Phil or J Jacob goes on to say that Phil does allow grudgingly that the problem of climate change is real, but insists that essentially the scientists will develop technologies that solve the problem. No worries. Uh, Jacob finds it hard to square Phil's uh, insistence that science is just going to solve it with the argument that uh, science and scientists should be, I guess, in more general terms, experts should be excluded from consideration when planning any leftist political program. Um, and moreover, there is general concern about climate change, especially young, young people. So it seems to be a non-starter to Jacob to kind of remove climate change as a consideration from any sort of political platform. Um, and then Jacob reserves his uh, harshest criticism for George, uh, saying, I take his first class train ticket away. I think that must be a reference to something that was said. Anyway, I take his first class train ticket away. He doesn't even engage with the issue in a serious way at all. I'd, I'd rather hear old fashioned climate change denial than his, I guess I just think it's not going to be a problem approach. Uh, try harder, Jacob concludes. Um, guys, the floor is, the floor is yours as um, you've been uh, singled out for criticism. So I suppose, let me reframe um, what I was trying to put across. Um, my what I was trying to put across is that any attempt to account for any attempt to frame climate change as an emergency needs to think about how it relates to a political system that can only legitimate itself through emer emergency and to think about how far that is supporting a politics that is essentially pro-systemic or essentially a prop of the current of the status quo in the current order and that's what i think isn't really addressed by the theorists of climate change as an emergency um that was what i was trying to do uh if that comes across as um grudging acceptance of climate change you know i mean I, i'm happy to accept um the scientific consensus on the question but i don't think that gets away from the fact that it has to be or whatever you know whatever the science might tell you it has to be 
Um, and this isn't just kind of as a normative proposition, but as a substantive fact, inevitably will be, has to be mediated through mass politics, that it will be refracted through people's aspirations, interests, um, and all sorts of different incentive structures and institutional um, configurations. So, you know, there is, I don't, I don't, um, it doesn't seem to me that accepting accepting um, a scientific consensus necessitates elevating scientists into some kind of uh, technocratic position. That doesn't seem to me to follow in any kind of meaningful way. And I would also, I suppose, put back to Jacob, and this will be my last point before I hand over to George. Um, I suppose I put it back in the sense that I think there's deep, you know, the kind of claim that, oh, you, you know, young people claim about care about climate change and this is why we should care about it i'm not convinced by that but i'd also say that there's a deep i think i suspect there are deep reservoirs of climate skepticism which are politically untouched um and these are you know i think this is the same kind of this skepticism that leads um possibly to a deeply kind of mistrustful and cynical and conspiratorial thinking and I think that has to be acknowledged and engaged with uh, rather than kind of um, ignored or simply kind of uh, engaging those people who happen to think that climate change is the most significant problem. And then, and I know I said that would be my last point, but just a very quick, another small point about this, the vast extinction of animal and plant life on the planet. I don't see that this, you know, these claims about extinction, I don't see why the status quo in terms of biodiversity, why it has to be elevated to a guiding principle of politics. Um, I mean, at least from a secular, you know, kind of uh, progressive, in scare quotes, viewpoint. I can see why you might wish to preserve biodiversity if you think it's intrinsically good in and of itself, if you're like a deep green, or if you're some kind of Christian green, where you think that God has given us the you know nature to look after as stewards, um, I can see arguments for preserving the status quo in biodiversity. But beginning from the approach that we must protect kind of the existing balance in the environment against any kind of changes, or that even that you know extinction of animal and plant life, or trying to you know prevent any change in the biosphere that that should be our ultimate priority. I think that needs to be defended rather than assumed because I don't accept it. George. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, a nice, easy question to welcome to welcome us back from from holiday. Um, yeah, I get, I get, you know, how, where would I start? So I guess I have to kind of take it on the chin to a certain extent, Jacob's point. I guess I just don't think it's going to be a problem. Um, that's wrong. It will be a problem because it will be climate change. It says it will be made a problem by by the left, by eco socialists, and I don't think this is the approach to the issue that I would put myself on the same um, side as. I think the the again to kind of pick. I don't want to kind of like seize on a small detail of what Jacob's saying and then you know not engage with the the main bit. But I think this idea that young people are in get young people are worried about the climate, so we so we need to be. I think that's that seems to me to be too similar to the approach that some people took to COVID. Like, oh, we need to be worried on behalf of old people. We need to like ventriloquize young people, 
they're all climate anxious or climate angry or whatever we need to like speak on behalf of old people and protect them from from covid it's a kind of i don't think that that way of constructing a political project of mobilizing people by speaking on their behalf i don't think that's a, a particularly kind of sustainable um long-term strategy i guess the the, the the central point about um emergency politics i think i think this it is important to restate this that the the notion that there is an objective emergency that's just not correct all these all these emergencies they are constructed they are um through you know different authors have different processes of construction or different factors applying different consequences to these constructions but i think the easy option of saying you know this you know those other emergencies okay they were they were fake they were just constructed they were just they only had social reality this one has has like scientific reality i don't i don't think that's i don't think you can make that distinction and so therefore i don't think the the starting point that you know finally this one is the one you have to accept even if you reject all the other ones i just don't i still i still continue um still continue not to buy that but i do take the point about I guess trying harder and maybe we should have a bit more of a sustained engagement with um contemporary environmentalism and um, there's you know a few quite a few books come out in the past few months on a variety from a variety of political perspectives um so maybe yeah we need to engage with half earth socialism and, and so on and so forth in the next few months so um where is that we get drawn into a big discussion on this. I'm not going to have my say on this. Um, and we'll just move on to the next question, which directly pertains to uh, the reading, which we did last time, which is um, by Zizek. So Scott Kirkland, um, and I think this is actually a really good point, um, says, I think you guys missed something in Zizek's reading of Kafka that might actually be seen through some of the work done subsequently, and which was read in the previous phase in uh, Gambin, that is to say in the previous phase of the reading club. Um, so, Towards the end of the episode, just to clarify, we discussed this idea of authority without truth, a kind of uh, circular self-justification for authority where uh, authority is followed blindly without any real belief that authority is merited. Um, so Scott uh, continues, authority without truth corresponds in a way to what in a gambin is the laws being enforced without significance. The structure by a Kafka is basically the stripping back of positive law to the site of sovereign decision itself and its arbitrariness. This is a kind of relationship between cynicism and emergency, the latter functioning, that is to say emergency functioning, precisely because of cynicism. The emergency confirms the position of the cynic. Ah, yes, the worst is the case. Um, that might be a little bit hard to digest just hearing that, listener, um, but I... I do think that's a really important point um, that's made in, in terms of um, when you have authority without truth, ultimately where you're going back down to is just law existing for its own sake and its arbitrariness. And that rests fundamentally on the kind of Schmidian idea that we discussed, I think at the very beginning of the year, that was the first reading club we did, um, where it is the sovereign's uh, decision to, to make an exception, which ultimately defines, uh, defines sovereignty and defines authority, and which is in some way self-justifying. Um, and then there's obviously this relationship to cynicism, which I think is interesting as well, that precisely, um, well, I guess this, this is a little bit, I, I'm, I'm, I would struggle to untangle a little bit. So, you know, guys jump in if you want to help me out, but, uh, that there's this relationship between cynicism, uh, and emergency politics. You're doing very well, Alex, carry on. <laughs> well, no, that the, emer the emergency politics, um, is precisely that kind of, uh, Schmidian idea of, of sovereignty, of deciding on the exception. Uh, and that a certain cynicism allows that to persist because you follow along with it, despite not believing in it. 
right? So the law is def defended, you know, circularly. Um, authority isn't really believed in. You know, the state doesn't. The state's authority isn't something that you actively um, have faith in. It's just something that you kind of follow along because it's there, um, and also because you don't really believe in any alternative. So um, you're rather pessimistic, and cynicism allows you just to kind of carry on you know, at a certain distance. Uh, yeah, I don't really believe in what the state says, what the state stands for. Uh, but, you know, whatever, I've got to carry on with my own life. I'm just going to take the piss out of them. So I don't emotionally invest in, in what the state actually is. Um, and I think that's, a, that's an important point to bear in mind, because we're going to touch back uh, on this notion as we go forward discussing Giddens, um, which I think as we'll, we'll discover, um, contains a lot more than just a discussion specifically at a kind of sub-political sociological level of uh you know of trust of trust in each other trust in institutions but make some pretty important claims about modernity and where we are today which we have to tangle with i think i i, I, I it'll sound like i'm patting myself on the back <laughs> but having you know reread the giddens and and prepared for this discussion i was like actually this really fits in very nicely with with the other readings that that we're doing so i hope uh listeners you find the same um and maybe phil and george if you find the same i don't know uh, we'll we'll find out what we all think in just a second. So um, before we actually get started on uh, on Giddens, and I'm going to introduce it and set it set it into context a little bit, uh, George and Phil, uh, what do you guys think uh, of the question of trust and mistrust? Uh, can we think of some examples of persons or social categories or institutions that are trust trusted today, and those are that uh, those that are mistrusted? I mean, do we have um, just to kind of put our priors on the table, um, where do we think we are with trust and mistrust today? I'd say podcasters are generally trusted, except us, obviously. Um, but <laughs> aside from that, I think there is, I mean, it's a leading question, Alex, because obviously the reason you've chosen this theme is precisely because everyone thinks there's a problem of trust. And, you know, there's it's easy to point to. Uh, the idea that uh, people are less trusting of uh, professions, of established institutions, of media outlets, of political, of uh, state authority. I mean, you know, that's not difficult to demonstrate. So it's hardly um, not to mention mistrust of scientists and doctors as a result of the pandemic. So, um, you know, given all of this, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's not like it's, uh, you know, it's not easy to point to plenty of examples of institutions that are held in esteem. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah. I guess it's interesting to think of some that are. I mean, that might be, you know, a good prompt as well. So I guess just um, the question of trust in general, I'm, I'm, yeah, maybe like Phil, I am distrustful of you posing this question, not of, not of you too core, but of you um, <laughs> Posing this question because it's like it's kind yeah, of a bit of a of you, Alex. It's, it's a bit of an elite. Well, no, you should. Oh, that's that's a shame. Um, but it's kind of a bit of an elite moral panic, isn't it? Like, why won't these fucking rubes trust us? Why won't they? You know, it's a bit like the dis um the discussion in. I think this is more like in the nineties of critical citizens. So declining rates of trust in all sorts of institutions, politicians, the. Um, the judges generally tend to have quite high rates of trust. Journalists always in the um, in the toilet in terms of um, their trust trust ratings. But these can be read in a number of different ways. One is that people um, basically each scandal, each uh, moment of untrustworthiness accumulates, and so 
and this is like quantitative sociology. So the the kind of the the trust ratings just trickle down over the course of um, time with some particularly steep descents when bad things happen. But another is that there's an increased expectation amongst citizens that um, institutions and actors will be trustworthy. Well, not even trustworthy, but will be competent and will be responsive and so on and so forth. So. I think there's, you know, there's a number of different ways to ways to read it. In terms of what, what institutions are trustworthy in contemporary society, I don't know. I'd, I'm 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 struggling to think of any public institutions that I would would imagine will will have continually high trust ratings. Probably, maybe go on. I was uh, yeah, scientists um, actually. Scientists tend scientists. to come up pretty high. Um, social scientists n- probably not um, social scientists but uh, yeah, scientific I socialists know, i don't know there's, no. there's data that distinguishes between the two but the um um and i don't know that you know these polls really capture kind of just how multi the kind of multivalent character of of uh, these feelings but i think a lot of it is also individuals right so in britain the queen would be held in high esteem, even though other members of the monarchy are much lesser, right? So does that does that amount to trust in the institution of monarchy? You know, like it's, I mean, I, it's not straightforward, right? Yeah, I mean, indeed, it's probably a trust in the institution of celebrity as incorporated by the, the, the monarch, uh, you know. Well, I don't even know. I don't think that's true in her case because she's not a celebrity monarch. I mean, I think that's why she is trusted, actually, in as far as she is. But um, so, I mean, I think it's possible to think of institution of individuals that embody certain institutions, right? But that's a question of, um, you know, how far there's an institutional and individual overlap. Um, and I think, it, I mean, it's similar, I think, in other countries where you have kind of figurehead um, heads of state that are usually very highly trusted. Or indeed, the military being trusted is one where it's... Yeah, the military uh, is typically very trusted, which is obviously less uh, less reassuring. Yeah, There's yeah. also, I think, I was just thinking who who who's the most trusted social type, at least in, in this country. And I think doctors, particularly our NHS doctors, are pretty trusted. However... There is always a bit of hate to be made by undermining trusted institutions and showing their their kind of their problems mm-hmm. or their dark underbelly. And there's a recent um, book and TV show, uh, which I think is off the top is Adam K is the name of this junior doctor. Anyway, it's um, yeah, it's like here's what really goes on in an in an NHS hospital, and it makes you think, okay, I would not, I don't want to at any point get ill and have to go to the hospital um, because it shows what's really going on. So that sort of thing, I guess, continues to undermine trust to the extent that there's a kind of, you know, going against the grain and showing the uh, even, I mean, with the example of the monarchy, even even the queen has um, um, a, a son who's untrustworthy in, in the case of <laughs> Prince Andrew. Yeah. Allegedly. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if anyone's going to sue us for saying that you know, uh, Prince Andrew has issues. Um I think, I mean, just to kind of kick this off, I think there's, I want to, the reason I I kind of brought this topic uh, up and and kind of wanted it to be, you know, to take, to to, to be, to be a part of this broader discussion of of cynical ideology today is to try to get beyond uh, two kind of uh, opposing positions. One is to be concerned about declining social trust and say, this is just a bad thing nakedly. And on the other hand, to just dismiss concern about trust as purely an elite moral panic, because I think it kind of goes beyond both of those. And if we explore it further, uh, it, we might, you know, discover that 
at periods which were more, much more hierarchical, much more deferential, in which you know social betters were trusted, um, were more revolutionary periods than ours. So it, I don't. It's not as straightforward to say, well, it's declining trust. We don't believe in the authorities. That means that we're um, much more self-standing agents who believe in ourselves. You know that it's not so. Um, it's not. It's not so clear cut. So anyway, um, let me say a little bit about Giddens and set this up um, before uh, George and Phil come back in and we actually discuss the the text and actually more than discussing the text itself, extrapolate from it. Um, so I, Anthony Giddens, for those who aren't familiar, is one of the most renowned sociologists alive today. Uh, his early work concerned the nature of sociology as a discipline, kind of returning back to the classics and dealing with questions of structure and agency. Um, but his most important work, in my view, and I think most people would agree with this, is the stuff done over the 1990s, looking at modernity and globalization. He is, it's important to note, one of the, the, the theorist, I suppose, of the third way, the that sort of supposed melding of uh, socialism and capitalism advocated by Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, in which any sort of connection that there used to be on the left between uh, a sort of economic determinism derived from Marxism was broken with entirely in favor of an emphasis on finding social justice within market society. This was obviously very you know, clearly seen in, in Blair and Clinton's politics. But I think the shallowness of that politics, which we're obviously hugely critical of, shouldn't color our perception and appreciation of Giddens entirely. Um, because I think he's a lot more uh, of a sophisticated sociologist than that. He was, uh, you know, he wrote one book prior to this period of the 90s concerned with modernity and uh, globalization, in which he was critical of Marxism, but he's quite a sympathetic and well-read critic of Marxism. Uh, but his ultimate criticism is that Marx and especially later Marxists were economically reductionists, ignoring other forms of power relations, whether it's the nation state or uh, racial and sexual oppression and so on. Uh, or criticizing Marxists for seeing these things as only epiphenomena of class relations. Um, we can return to a little bit to, to, to what might be the problem with that. Um, if we, you guys want to have a say on that. Um, but I want to turn now to saying specifically what the content of the consequences of modernity is, because here um, we kind of said as the reading uh, chapter three, but um, the discussion of trust is set in a much broader conception of uh, modernity and trying to assert itself, I think Giddens is trying to do, into a debate about post-modernity. And as we'll see, uh, he can't really be put in the same category as those who say we're now in post-modernity. Um, so, I think one of the ways that we can see the link between Giddens' work on modernity and his advocacy of the third way is in this book. Um, but it's not so direct as or so crude as saying, you know, we should we can have the market, the market is efficient, but we can then redistribute the gain to the market. Uh, it goes much deeper than that. So one way of presenting this, uh, Giddens presents two images of two classic images of modernity. There's uh, that derived from Max Weber. That's Weber's iron cage, which is this pessimistic vision of modernity, whereby uh, progress ac actually ends up just locking in human beings and their capacity for agency within rigid bureaucracies, um, which is a pessimistic view, which we encountered actually uh, in discussing Foucault, kind of in, in some ways, um, someone to have inherited Weber's pessimism about modernity. The other vision is that of Marx's monster, 
So for Marx, modernity is both terrible and destructive, as well as brilliant and full of potential. And that's potential which could be seized upon and directed by human beings to create a more humane world. Uh, socialism, which itself would be a form of post-modernity. So I think this is interesting, um, also because Giddens notes in the book that no one now identifies post-modernity with what it used to mean, which was the replacement of capitalism by socialism. So, you know, post-modernity now is just everything um, is kind of flexible, free-floating. We identify according to, you know, gender and race and whatever rather than class. Uh, globalization blurs the boundaries of nation states and sovereignty, all that kind of stuff. Um, there was a different vision of what a world beyond modernity was, and that was socialism. Uh, which is something that we've now forgotten. Um, by the way, if you want to learn a little bit more about this and to kind of get a grasp, a greater grasp on these conceptions of modernity, I can point you to a reading club that we did last year, which was on Marshall Berman's All That Is Solid. Uh, that's episode number 227 from November last year. Um, that's good to kind of refer back because a lot of this, there's a certain confluence um, with what we're discussing here. So, um, I think one way of trying to get a grasp fundamentally about what Giddens is saying about modernity and what his more positive vision of it is, is that instead of Weber's iron cage or Marx's monster, Giddens advances this idea of a juggernaut, a runaway engine of enormous power, which collectively as human beings, we can't draw, we can drive to some extent, but which also threatens to rush out of our control and which could render itself asunder. So here we're getting a little bit closer to this third way idea where, um, you know, you're in a globalized world where collective agency is much more limited than the vision presented in Marxian socialism. And that risk is everywhere. But something can still be done to, to make society better. Um, but we just have to kind of rein in um, our expectations of what our collective agency could be. Um, so I think that already paints a little bit of a, of a sense of, of where Giddens is going and what his portrayal of a modernity which is not totally out of control, not totally dominating, but at the same time is uh, difficult to completely um, bring under human mastery. Um, a final point, just I think about Giddens' um, kind of perspective on things, which I think will become clear as we go into the discussion, is that for him, the question of knowledge, reflexive knowledge, uh, consciousness of our own knowledge and, and the knowledge created about the world takes on a much more central role for him than a Marxist emphasis on power, which would specifically be economic power. So uh, ultimately for Giddens, modernity is important. For him, it's discontinuous with traditional societies. And I, that's why I think Giddens is worth reading. Um, and as I said before, he's not a thinker of post-modernity, which is to say those thinkers who emphasize things like the fragmented self, um, one in which epistemology is really important, where, you know, we there is no there is no truth, um, everything is discourse and all that kind of thing. Instead, he argues that what we have today is still modernity, but it's an age in which the consequences of modernity are becoming more radicalized and universalized than before. And the reason for this is, is that today's modernity is one in which the remnants of tradition and providential outlooks have been cleared away. I think this is really important. It's, it's basically saying that we live in a naked modernity, or to put it in more Marxian language, in a kind of more naked capitalism. Giddens, of course, de-emphasizes the category of capitalism and places it alongside other things like military power and industrialism and surveillance. Um, so there's other sources of power for, for Giddens than, than the supposedly economic 
reductionist vision of Marxism, um, a vision which I disagree with. But anyway, um, I think there's another um, way of discussing this, and I would refer uh, you back, listener, if you're interested, to another reading club, which we did in October of last year, uh, which was on Gaspar Miklos Tamash's essay, Telling the Truth About Class, it was episode 221, where there's also a similar idea there about the capitalism that emerges after the 1970s, which is a completely post-traditional capitalism in which uh, the old forms of domination based on caste, which, whether that be race or whatever it is, um, are done away with and we're left now with just the pure domination of the market. Um, and that also bears some similarities to, to what Giddens is presenting here in his discussions of the social consequences of modernity. Um, I was going to say some things about what... Um, how Giddens sees modernity as discontinuous from traditional societies, but I don't want to go on for too long. I'll just list them. Uh, the separation of time and space, the disembedding of social systems, and the reflexing, reflexive ordering and reordering of social relations. Um, again, if you, if you want to uh, read more about this, and if this is new to you, uh, chapter one of the book actually goes through all of this and, and sets uh, in a bit of context what we read in chapter three and what we're about to discuss. Um, so um, I'm just going to finish with a quote from uh, from Giddens to from chapter one, again, which sets this all into context. What is characteristic of modernity is not an embracing of the new for its own sake, but the presumption of wholesale reflexivity, including reflection upon the nature of reflection itself. Probably we are only now beginning to realize in a full sense how deeply unsettling this outlook is. For when the claims of reasons replaced those of tradition, they appeared to offer a sense of certitude greater than that provided by pre-existing dogma. But this idea only appears persuasive so long as we do not see that the reflexivity of modernity actually subverts reason. And Giddens notes shortly after this uh, passage, which I read, uh, by noting that the equation of knowledge with certainty has turned out to be misconceived. So we're in some sense dependent uh, in our societies on reflexively applied knowledge, to put it in Giddens terms, but also aware that knowledge is provisional, um, that, you know, science is always kind of being updated and that all this stuff that is presented as the science and fact is, is um, you know, subject to question and revision. So it, it means that we live in a world in where things are much more up for question and where we supposedly can't just be conscious, we can't just be... Um, happy to be confident in reason to resolve things as the old enlightenment attitude had it because uh, we are much more uh, reflexive beings and conscious of this uncertainty and con and conscious of risk, which is a very important bit, which uh, we'll come to in the discussion. So anyway, I don't want to carry on too long. To get started off, and, and this is going to be the only question which really refers more directly to the text, um, to chapter three, so, uh, Phil and George, um, the it, it, Gidden says that the opposite of trust is not necessarily mistrust, but existential angst, uh, a lack of trust at the ontological level about what exists or about the integrity of the self or whatever. So which of these terms do you think is more critical for understanding contemporary ph phenomena? Are we, uh, you know, like, for example, the the indices of mistrust, which we mentioned earlier. Is it, is it mistrust? Is it existential angst? What do we think? It's uh, yeah. I mean, it's an, an interesting um, way that he sets this up. So his idea is essentially that, yeah, trust is related to ontological security and ultimately 
in located in in the relationship with the mother which is you know is not i guess the way that you would normally start thinking about about trust um and that this ontological security is then related to in some ways your uh your continued interactions with persons and things which give you give you the sense of actually existing through time and being like certain that you you do exist so i mean it's it definitely made me think because you know you, you you're probably used to the quantification of of trust and like on a on a scale of like from one to five or from strongly ag- agree to strongly disagree how much would you agree with these statements i trust the police blah 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 so this kind of quanti- this um quantitative approach which yeah then you have a sliding scale or you can rank things in terms of trust or mistrust but it's it is a much much more central concept and if it's not there then what do you have you have existential angst you may ha- maybe have some related uh feelings of potentially around betrayal or some extremely strong psychological reactions to the taking away of those previously trusted objects so instead of a kind of i guess a political problem it's a it's a it's a deep philosophical and psychological problem if the previous grounding that people had in in trusted um in essentially trusting that the external world is constant and there um it's a pretty yeah it's a pretty big deal if those things um can't be relied on um so it's yeah i mean i I don't know if i would necessarily agree with it or not in you know taken in the abstract but it's certainly you can see why he, he does this and it is related to the rest of his the theory that he built in that in that chapter yeah i mean just to add something onto that quickly he mentioned an, as an example of this ontological uncertainty you know schizophrenics right um and i think elsewhere Giddens argues that the the moving away of of the mentally ill outside of society so that they're not really visible has made us forget what it is to be truly ontologically um uncertain it's um I suppose, I mean, I suppose I, it's a long time since I read this and it's interesting going back to it. Um, it's probably not that long. It's just that you've been on holiday. So it feels like several, <laughs> several years, uh, but it's actually just. What, what I mean is kind of, of since of I read this places. kind of classic um, sociology of the Blairite era. And I, I mean, I say that, you know, by way of hopefully trying to characterize it, not to just politically kind of undercut it. Um, one thing I would say is though that the whole premise of the argument is the idea that it that um, modernity is kind of producing these gargantuan reflexive processes that react back on modernity itself? I mean, he's basically talking about globalization, right? And he cast himself as a sociologist of globalization in the 1990s. And I suppose it's interesting to, and that is kind of an for him that was an objective process which kind of backends all of these other claims that are of necessity kind of, you know, less, um, seemingly less tangible, um, more kind of ineffable, more uh, to do with psychological and subjective phenomena and what have you. So it's a very important kind of back end is this, you know, backstop rather, is this uh, globalization. And it's interesting, I suppose, to know that in one way, we're even more kind of reflexive at this point in the sense that even globalization itself is now being eroded or mm. seen to be yet another kind of contingent phenomenon, which is the outcome of specific political decisions, at least those nice. you know, that were made yeah. by um by Giddens's political um you know political kind of patrons. Uh so that I think in itself is kind of you know it's worth 
it's we don't need to take for granted some of the assumptions that motivate his narrative. Um, but on your specific question, Alex, about the mistrust and existential angst, um, it's yeah, it's very it's very hard to establish. I mean, I think it's um, and I think it's a pro. I think the issue is rather that his attempt to separate them out. I mean, I would. It would seem to me rather, you know, you've got kind of, I think existential angst exists, can exist alongside trust as well as mistrust. Um, and so I would, I'm not sure that the way in which he sets it up, uh, that existential angst is, is, is the consequence of a lack of trust is quite right. Because it seems to me, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, it seems to me existential angst and trust can actually coexist quite uh, quite easily. And he, I mean, he suggests this with the example of religion, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so in traditional societies, you have kind of the kind of existential existential questions will be absorbed by or experienced as religious questions. And it's only in modernity where religion recedes into the background and secularization advances that you have kind of existential angst develop independently. But or independently of religion, but that doesn't seem to me to be, you know, that it should be seen as opposite to trust. No, and I think the point about religion is good because um, I think one thing that Giddens uh, argues, and I think this is, I agree with this, is that what you have with secularization is actually the uh, receding of tradition, right? As a, as a not of of specific traditions, but of tradition as as a sort of unquestioned backdrop to 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 life and the way that. Uh, life is routinized and repeated and so on. At, that is what is going on and not necessarily the receding of religion. That in fact, in post in completely post-traditional societies, religion can come back in. And we see this with the rise of evangelism, for example. I think that's where the neo-Pentecostal churches is, is very obvious, but also things like astrology or other forms of uh, you know magical thinking, new age and so on, which emerge exactly when religion as an organized social force seems to be weaker. Uh, so I think that's important also to to bear in mind that we kind of latch on to those and maybe they they provide means of, um, well, just at a basic level understanding the world, but also of, um, of perhaps mediating that existential angst or kind of giving it some sort of explanation um and and not yeah, in the terms not way... in the like catholic terms of like i've sinned or you know there's a, or some notion of original sin for example it's not no, that it's, it's a different. way of kind of glossing contingency right i mean you know so in a world which seems so uncertain you know kind of being able to account for phenomena by something uh so kind of arbitrary and remote as you know the influence of jupiter on sagittarius or whatever yeah, I mean that's the kind of it's a folk kind of it's a folk gloss yeah. on the everyday experience of um, a lack of control and contingency. Yeah, a lack of agency. But don't you know? Don't 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 be alarmed. If this is just the the play of contingent, complicated factors. You need to go with the flow and um, not try and control things. That's that's a bit that's a bit dangerous, and that's and that's a. Uh, a response in the wrong direction this would be the well and 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 also like the i mean the astrology thing there's a very 
strong connection, I think, with Jung, right? Um, where he Jung was very interested in developing this idea of, of social archetypes, which is something that Freud rejected. Um, and it's a way, I think, of... Uh, Benjamin Studebaker makes a good point on, a, on another podcast about uh, where they discuss Jung, about that it actually provides people with a at least a very basic introduction to kind of thinking psychologically um but you know he goes no further in in, in um being positive about young but basically that it's that like with astrology as well it's a way of kind of categorizing people and understanding um other people and what motivates them according to certain categories uh, which otherwise they would confront you as somehow inexplicable black boxes um because you know in post-traditional societies people don't behave in the way that you you expect them to because they're subject to their own you know whims and desires and whatnot you're in a you're a believer in astrology aren't you alex no I, i'm not i'm not but uh, but apparently that's a very aquarius thing to do so you know. <laughs> um, no you said you were i good. remember you said like you had to accept it when you moved to brazil because no, everyone I, is into it in brazil and if you want to date someone in brazil you have to accept astrology yeah yeah to date girls i i needed to at least be conversant in in astrology but you know you do what you, you need are, to do you, there is only one are, true god here and, and we, i'm not going to explicitly you are a practitioner so you're a practitioner of cynical ideology indeed indeed you are, a cynical indeed. believer of astrology you're undermining listeners trust in in anything that you're that you're saying unfortunately alex you've <laughs> re revealed yourself to be a pragmatist of the uh most direct sort most erect sort <laughs> direct oh right yeah no that would be <clears throat> better anyway um speaking of cynicism um i'm just going to cite some examples from survey data about uh trust and you guys jump in if you want to comment on any of these um so a gallup poll um of uh which and they've been asking this question for a long time about different institutions and this is the most recent one from 2022 so uh the following institutions have less than 30 percent trust public schools organized labor banks big tech the Supreme Court, the presidency. The following uh, institutions have less than 20% trust. Congress, TV news, big business, criminal justice, newspapers. Congress is, is like completely bottomed out, 7%. Um, whereas at the top end, small businesses have a trust of 68% and the military 64%. Uh, and, they, and they chart this, they have some composite number uh, where across all these 14 different institutions, uh, trust has fallen to 27% from a high of 48% in 1979, or at least that's when the, I mean, the time series begins. Yeah, I think it's amazing that, you know, it's only 48% in 1979. I mean, that right. in itself, I think, yeah. is fairly remarkable. Um, but then again, you know, you think of like, you know, it's the kind of era, just to name the ten, the two cliches of the, of the 70s in the US, at least, you know, it's Watergate and Vietnam, right? Um, and yet, uh, despite that, you know, despite those kind of actually kind of, um, uh, especially in the case of Vietnam, an actual kind of world historic change um, politically, you know, the political defeat of the world's most powerful imperial power, or its military defeat, rather, and you still have higher rates of trust in the basic institutions of that society than you do now. Yeah. I think that, you know, that in itself is fairly remarkable. I mean, I would, I guess I'd like to see pre-pandemic comparisons for some of these, particularly big tech and public schools. Um, and none of them would be a surprise, you know, I mean, you can just think, you know, public schools, obviously nobody has trusted them, given the kind of abominable way so many kind of public, so many of the public school systems behaved in the US. Organized labor, why would anyone believe in organized labor, given the fact that it's achieved nothing for its members in decades? Banks are always there to screw you over. 
everyone knows big tech, you know, is listening to you on your mobile phone, manipulating you with algorithms and whatnot. The Supreme Court, you know, the left thinks the right owns the Supreme Court. The right blames the Supreme Court for all kind of liberal social advances in the last few years. And the presidency, either you're for Trump or against Trump, and therefore you hate the, you know, you uh, then that means you're pro-Biden or anti-Biden. So you hate the presidency, depending on completely polarized kind of view. So, I mean, all of it is fair. I think, you know, I suppose my point is that all of it is fair. It's not mysterious, I think, to identify why there would be um, the raw kind of, uh, you know, kind of figures are fairly easily explicable, I think, by reference to what's happening in the world. I don't think you yeah. need kind of uh, particularly great social scientific skills to tease out like what the um, what the reasons would be for these kinds of figures. Nor do I think, I think you need. Sorry, go ahead, George. No, I mean it's not a particularly serious point, but I was trying to think what would people actually have trust in, what institutions, and the thing which which I kept coming back to was um, dogs. <laughs> I think people would have trust in animals. These are this is this is the this the uh, state that we're at. That basically the non-human um, is is going to be trusted more than the human soon i mean i i, uh, I don't but then there's, there's the a social there was a panic about glaciers are melting and you know like nature is rampaging and hurricanes no i'm serious alex is looking very skeptical but like i mean surely that's the point like you can't it's not like you can fall back onto nature and trust in kind of natural the rhythms of the natural world because those are turning against us right i mean not dogs well, i mean this and, is so cats we all know cats are untrustworthy that's but true. If I'm not saying that Gallup should include dogs in their 2023 <laughs> poll, but if anybody's listening who has the power to do this, I think they would score relatively highly. Mm, and I but I do take dogs. your point about the the rest of nature. That's why I said dogs specifically and not and not not nature. Um, yeah, more more seriously. Um, uh, there's I mean, there's obviously loads of different institutions that study trust. Um, this just to cite a couple of other bits of data from uh, this is from Edelman, which have been running a trust barometer for like 20 years. Um, that finds that uh, there's a government media trust uh, distrust spiral, which is um, obvious that there's an excessive reliance on business, which businesses then aren't able to take up the slack. Of course, that doesn't stop them trying by businesses uh, and specifically brands communicating on everything, right? Brands talk to you more than strangers do nowadays, right? Um, and so that is in some ways a, a, an attempt to fill a trust deficit, which they're unable to do. Um, but another bit, uh, which again, doesn't require any social scientific unpicking to really explain it, but you've got a huge gap in trust between high and low income people. Um, this is this is not surprising, but this is according to uh, Edelman. Uh, back in 2012, there was like a six point gap. Uh, today, it has spread to 15 points. So um, high income people in a kind of global composite of 22 countries ranging from Nigeria to Argentina to kind of all the rich world world um and 62 percent have have trust whereas uh the low-income people at 47 percent uh again that that is like takes no real um extra explicating out of why that might be um but it's notable nonetheless um and just one final point of of data um social leaders aren't trusted so you know government leaders journalists ceos but when asked about my CEO, uh, my coworkers, and so on, uh, people in my local community, uh, trust seems to be higher. So there, there, there is a degree maybe of, of um, reliance on uh, what Giddens calls face work. Um, basically, 
the, you know, kind of knowing people present uh, in the same space um, to trust them, whereas more abstract entities or distant entities aren't trusted. And I mean, I think that it's, you know, I, I know this from Brazil, where here it's very, um, there's a huge emphasis on on kind of interpersonal relations and contacts and getting to know people, because you can't trust um, distant people, because there's too many scams, or there's not enough state authority to enforce uh, enforce things. So there's a, a there's a premium placed on actually getting to know someone and being buddy with them, uh, even if what you're doing is purely transactional. Um, so that's again not not uh, not terribly surprising. So to get back to the kind of more theoretical questions, I did want to ask whether we thought in having read the Giddens, how much is the contemporary loss of trust institutions uh, in our times and the end of history and the end of the end of history, something that is could be identified as a modern phenomenon, that is to say, uh, that belongs to modernity as a whole, a necessary consequence of modernity, or is it a specific product of the radicalized modernity that Giddens identifies or, um, you know, to put it in other terms, post-modernity. Um, how, how do we see it? Is, you know, is there something to distinguish the contemporary loss of trust from, from things that happened in the past? Is it just on a continuum? It's, I mean, I suppose it depends what level, you know, you're thinking of it as. So much of what Giddens accounts for here, I think, can be, you know, very, well, I think it can be accounted for in a more consistent fashion through, you know, like a classical category of Marxian theory like alienation in terms of the connection between lack of control and the subjective um, outlook and uh, disposition that results from lack of control in society. Um, and that seems to me to be, you know, in terms of characterizing modernity and scare quotes, it seems to be a much kind of more effective, gives a much more effective grip than Giddens more, you know, kind of uh, hodgepodge of different theorists and insights that are, you know, kind of blended together. But if you're talking, you know, at um, in terms of different periods, uh, I suppose I would hazard to say, like, that we probably, you know, the end... The end of history should coincide with more mistrust, it seems to me, right? Um, in the sense that if it is, if it does correspond to the end of kind of ideological contestation and the end of effort to kind of motivate people through um through politics and through the belief structures associated with politics and with political passivity and quiescence, then you're more likely to see mistrust. You know, logically speaking, mistrust would correspond with that period. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, I guess to, to you know to link it to modernity or to kind of address the question that you that you asked, Alex. The I guess there's one approach which says essentially trust doesn't matter. Like it actually is a kind of a non-problem because it it doesn't really matter how people um, feel towards institutions or feel towards the rest of society. There is a um, there is a a system. And this is what Anna Smith says, not from the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, the brewer that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. There's a, there's a structure that means that social institutions continue to function and reproduce themselves, whether you trust in them or not. You have to have um, very, very little, um, I guess, 
very like you don't need to put yourself in other people's shoes you don't need to project any feelings onto them you don't need to have any kind of effective yeah. um relationship with them of any sort it's just the fact that you know you just you just barely assume that they don't want to starve and and so that's why well, they do what they do and, and this is like the i guess the cynicism that would be baked into market society from the start um but which as we discussed last time you know takes on a particularly important role today where um you know you don't have to believe you just continue doing it um which you know is, is the whole basis of what zizek argues um and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's true, though, I guess w- what does present a problem and not just for elites who want this society to work, but I mean, for anyone even seeking to overthrow this current order, um, it would also present a problem that um, it becomes a problem in terms of motivation and social purpose, I think, if people don't trust in institutions, that uh, if you become an isolated individ- individual, the the tendency is towards privatism pessimism, you know, further atomization rather than um, any sort of clubbing together to form alternative institutions. And I think that's the the kind of thing that we're, we're faced with very starkly today. Um, so I, I want to move this on by referring to the question of risk, because I think this is, a, this will be a way, it may not seem like it immediately, but of connecting back to the question of, um, of emergency politics, actually, um, and trying to tie this together. So for Giddens, in the modern world, risk looms large. Matters aren't just random or determined by fortuna, you know, which can be understood as fate, um, as in traditional societies, but rather can be calculated as risk, right? So um, in a rational society, you can kind of question what the benefits and risks of uh, engaging in a certain activity might be. But for Giddens, and I think the, I think he's right in saying this, that trust isn't just a matter of the consequence of your risk-benefit analysis, cost-benefit analysis, right? That you go, okay, well, on balance, the likelihood of, of something good happening is 70%, therefore I trust. It's rather something that's much more continuous. It's an article of faith that kind of pre-exists any, the, the kind of analysis of risk, right? Either you trust that things will go okay, that, you know, there won't be nuclear war, um, or trust that the scientists will solve climate change, <laughs> to, to make a call back to where we started this episode, um, or you don't, right? Um, and, but nevertheless, that there is in, in modernity, especially in, at this kind of late modernity, or however you want to put it, a heightened consciousness of risk, and also a consciousness of that consciousness. So this is the reflexivity that Giddens talks about. Um you know, we're, we're all aware of risks like climate change um, or, or war, and we are aware that uh, other people are aware of this, um, and we're aware of that awareness, right? So um, that is, you know, the kind of risk society which uh, someone like Ulrich Beck, uh, with someone who is Giddens is often kind of paired with or discussed with, um, did more to develop actually than, than Giddens even did. Um, I, I want to bring in a quote that uh, Giddens uh, uses, he, he quotes Susan T- Sontag in, in chapter four as a way of kind of depicting this risk consciousness. A permanent modern scenario. Apocalypse looms, and it doesn't occur. And still it looms. Apocalypse is now a long-running serial. Not apocalypse now, but apocalypse from now on. 
Um, I think that, you know, captures something very accurately about, about the modern world or, you know, how, as Baudrillard put it, um, you know, we didn't do 9-11, but we wished it or something like this, something along those lines, right? Um, all the cinematic imaginings of, of, uh, of apocalypse before they actually happened. Um, so I think here we can kind of draw a link back to emergency politics. What do we see as the connection between the absence of trust, this growing risk consciousness and the sense of impending apocalypse how does this kind of all play out socially and politically yeah so i guess giddens's approach would be that you know trust is bound up with the need to to kind of have those reliable interactions across time and space you know this is the um you know it takes the, the place of, of tradition in in this in this sense it's like the the role of the, the past and the expectation of the future so it's very you know it's very closely related if there's a lack of uh widespread trust if there's a um if this doesn't you know if if these you can't assume that people are going to behave in a in a certain way then yeah this leads to a sort of existential angst or a sort of maybe more general more generalized anxiety which can then localize itself uh onto specific objects of fear of anxiety such as the destruction of the world so there is a kind of you know maybe there is a a, a kind of a set of um steps there which go from the structural um disembedding as he might might call it um to the greater susceptibility to feeling like the the world is basically like you have no ontological security and this then leaps across to the, the the world ending so i think you know there is there's definitely in his um you don't want to force a connection too much but you can see how how he, he would kind of construct all these things as related yeah phil do you have any any comment on the on this question of um you know impending doom apocalypse no, Phil just. Phil's, has Phil's done with emergency day. politics now. <laughs> yeah, post post <laughs> no, emergency. I, it's uh, you know, I, it's, I don't. I mean, I don't really have anything to add to it. It seems to me it's kind of the, I guess it's the million dollar question in a sense um, about whether or not the two things. I mean, you know, Susan Sontag. When did you say that? In the early eighties, late seventies. I think. Something um, like that. Yeah, that's when I, that's what, off the top of my head, that's when I recall the thing, you know, the statement. And so, you know, you have kind of higher rates of trust, as we've talked about in the Cold War, coexisting with all sorts of existential dread, not least about nuclear war and Third World War and what have you. So, you know, it doesn't seem to me like the, there must be a connection, right, um, between kind of emergency politics and trust, but it doesn't seem to me to be straightforward, uh, so, yeah, I mean, even, you know, kind of faith that whatever Kennedy would resolve the Cuban Missile Crisis in a reasonable manner, even though yeah, it was obviously very, indeed. very dangerous that and, and very plausible that he wouldn't. Um, and, and maybe people disagreed yeah. with what Kennedy was doing, but somehow still had a faith in the presidency. You know, I disagree with this means of doing it, but it, you won't fuck it up. I don't know. I It's, it's obviously hard to put oneself yeah, into the mind Nixon. of, uh, you know. Indeed, yeah, or in Nixon and Kissinger and people like that, you know, to kind of manage the, to kind of manage teetering along the precipice, right, of uh, of brinkmanship in a nuclear standoff. Um, you know, I think so, 
that explaining i suppose that is a more you know kind of context specific phenomenon than a general claim about the um you know the enormous challenges that confront humanity globally yeah i mean i do think one bit of the picture which we haven't mentioned is you know the declining social capital to put it in the kind of social science terms um but otherwise you know the hollowing out of civil society because i think the thickness of those networks might provide some explanation as to you know why people were insulated to a certain degree from this mistrust or that they that it kind of buoyed people in a certain way um to have these uh connections um whereas today uh you know atomization means that people feel more vulnerable feel that everything is much more contingent and are conscious of this risk conscious of the fact that everyone else is aware of this risk and that then provides the platform for emergency politics, I think, because if you don't trust in, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying this out here, um, so I, I'm not, um, you know, staking my, my, all, all my, my money on this, but like I think the, the idea would be that in the absence of trust in the normal functioning of institutions, you know, you don't trust Congress, you don't trust any political parties, you don't trust any of the politicians, you don't trust journalists to tell you the truth about what's happening. You don't trust lawyers, med doctors, etc. Um, that in that context, only somehow uh, the much more authoritarian, direct, immediate, and like not law bound application of power, as in an emergency, um, can you have trust that the right thing will be done somehow? Um, that it, that that it's a that emergency politics is a short circuit for for trust. Um, or so you know, short what, circuit trust. I don't know. So, so what would the the consequence be that you, your your, well, you'd welcome it because it's a a short circuiting of all of the institutions that you don't trust. Yeah, you mean me specifically, or or the the citizen, the citizen. Yeah, I think which, the, which, the citizen might or might not it. be you. Yeah, the citizen yeah. welcomes it. I think that's the idea. I like that. You know, we're all as we've said before. You know, politics today is just competing emergency politics, and I think that's the sort of short circuit that that can get past the mistrust which is you know it's somewhat paradoxical because if you don't trust politicians why do you want to hand them extraordinary powers yeah not a good point um i, I like the silence i hope this i wanted actually the silence to carry on a little bit longer just because well, you, like, <laughs> you can just trust... insert the silence in, that's true i can post production you don't i think the point is you don't trust politicians so emergency powers tend to empower kind of non-representative figures right i mean that's why the recourse to emergency powers is more perhaps reassuring yeah right? I, national yeah. security experts deep state bureaucrats the military the police the executive mm. rather than you know the legislature so i mean that seems yeah. to me to be consistent that's true i mean you, you it does make you want to yell like no you trust all the wrong things right we trust all the wrong things i don't trust congress in my country or you know whatever and yet you think no you at least trust the people that you elected not some you know shady figure behind the scenes but you know that's where we are um so um i just wanted to bring in one thing in terms of giddens possible solutions before moving on to two points looking more specifically at uh, markets and the state and kind of how trust relates to those um i think it's interesting that giddens um again this isn't from i think specifically the reading it's from chapter four if you're interested it's i think it's worth reading so uh giddens 
sees four possible responses to um, this state of affairs. One is pragmatic acceptance. So that's just concentrate on surviving, which is uh, he kind of uses Lash to explain that. And I think we can all um, imagine what that what that entails, right? In this kind of risk society um, of mistrust, you, you just kind of try to get by, basically. Uh, a second one is sustained optimism, which would be the enlightenment attitude of continued faith in providential reason, which is a very, I guess, 19th century approach. It would be the the, the attitude which underlies, uh, you know, Marx, uh, for example, um, Mill probably as well. You know, it, it's a, I, I think, again, we can refer back to Marshall Berman on this and the episode of Marshall Berman to, as a way of, um, yeah, kind of elaborating on, on what that would mean. Um, the third is cynical pessimism, which in... I think is an interesting little um, way he puts this, which is the dampening uh, of emotion, the emotional impact of anxieties through a humorous or world weary response. So, you know, you're pessimistic, but you're not just totally gloomy because the cynicism takes the edge off, right? It gives you a certain distance to your own pessimism. Um, and that's precisely what we were discussing in the last episode. Uh, the last issue of, of the reading club on cynical ideology. And then you have the fourth, which is effectively Giddens' proposal, which is radical engagement, which would be practical contestation towards perceived sources of danger. And this would be, in contrast to the sustained optimism of the Enlightenment attitude, uh, contest uh, contestatory rather than merely being a faith in reason. So it's not just that, you know, um, society will figure it out or that, uh, you know, progress in a kind of Whiggish sense will resolve these social problems, um, but that we have to take head on. So, you know, Giddens then goes on to write a lot about climate change um, in the in the 2000s after, you know, after this period on writing on globalization. And presumably there would be like, let's deal specifically with climate change as a way of kind of taking on the, the anxiety created the... by risk. It was also something of a ref. It was also something of a retreat for him, though, from talking about British society and politics after the first Blair term, right? Mm -hmm. So he kind of he retreated into globalism um, as it became clear, you know, the new Labour government kind of quickly kind of uh, exhausted all of the energy and optimism that was associated with it early on, and then obviously it stumbled into the Iraq War as well, and so that I think was the climate change thing was Giddens trying to kind of maintain his focus on risk society while at the same time kind of distancing himself politically from the actual outcome of the government he supported. But we can see, I mean, the point is we, you know, his, um, we know what his vision of radical engagement looks like, right? Yeah. It's essentially identity politics. So constant recreation of the self by adopting all these different kind of uh, sources of, um Stability to, you yeah. know, kind of emotional and uh, psychic stability to ward off all the, you know, the kind of the challenges posed by the world around you. And it's, um, you know, the kind of the Blairite model of the state, which doesn't intervene, um, doesn't intervene significantly in the economy um, and, uh, you know, kind of doesn't, uh, you know, mount kind of fiscal redress or anything, but will be very busy in terms of giving parenting tips, um, telling you how long you should be on your mobile phone, kind of lifestyle regulation, expanding the authority of the police and various kind of bureaucratic and regulatory agencies and bodies. So we know, you know, I mean, I suppose I'm only saying that we've had Giddens' solution has been played out for the yeah. last uh, I mean, few decades. I, it would be unfair to pin all of 
uh, all of Blair and all of Blairism on Giddens. Um, no, but no, but but I think the general the general contours are definitely there. It's it's riding the juggernaut, right? It's letting the market do its thing and then reaping some of the rewards and maybe redistributing a bit, channeling more funds towards well, education and so on. It's adaptation. It's adaptation. To those things, right? Yeah. yeah. And like you say, kind of um, responding by. Adapting, you know, the expansion of universities, right, was a classic kind of uh, a classic Blairite thing. That was yeah. also something which Giddens was um, a strong supporter of because education would make you adaptable, exactly. particularly if you, of course, you were reading kind of um, Giddens as part of your LSE um lsc sociology training i i have adopted i have adapted so you know um <laughs> anyway um I, anyway i i highlight that because i think it is a, a i think it's a neat and useful typology of of, of response you know lashian uh pragmatic acceptance um enlightenment sustained optimism uh zizekian cynical pessimism and giddens's radical engagement um of course those i you know i'm not su suggesting that Zizek is a cynical pessimist. It's just that he would be the thinker identified with that. Anyway, um, move on to uh, the, the final two points. Um, why does trust matter? Well, I think a lot of the people who write about trust, and this might be behind some of George's skepticism about the question of trust as well, is that markets rely on trust. It rely, you know, that you need to trust that contracts will be honored, that deliveries will arrive on time or arrive at all. Um, and above all, that money can be trusted, especially fiat money. Can be trusted um, to be both accepted by your interlocutor in the market, and that it also is backed by sovereign authority. Um, or there are technological solutions. Of course, the blockchain um, is one where you have you know blockchain money, which is which provides the trust. There's actually an additional reading in in the um, you know the the kind of 2022 reading club syllabus on that specifically. If you want to look that up, um, but uh, but I think at the same time the disembedding that Giddens talks about as a, as a feature of modernity in which becomes or whose effects become radicalized in our times um, is that you know markets in doing in doing this and disembedding also seem to erode a lot of social trust. So that you know first of all that that is a you know I think a classical contradiction of the market. Um, I don't think I'm saying anything new here, um, but I think it also prompts the question whether uh, if we don't trust any social institutions, but we are uh, at the very least kind of cynically accepting of capitalism, is money the only thing we still trust? And if so, what is the nature of this trust or faith? I think the silent, I'm going to keep that silence in too. Um, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't quite get this question. I have to say, I don't, I don't know if maybe we should. Um, well, I mean, I, let me, let me just say, I guess what I think of it, because it's, um, you know, if we are confronted kind of nakedly with the cash nexus without other forms of hierarchy, um, other forms of tradition and, and authority, then um, then the only thing we have is the market, right? The market is the only authority um, and money is the, you know, the key symbolic token, which, which uh, stands for it. So um, yeah, the ability to buy, to buy and sell and, and the kind of whatever stability or um, security that might provide is the only, um, the only thing we still trust perhaps. Right. Um, and you can see, I think maybe one of the best examples of that is, 
uh, again, to uh, like evangelical, you know, charismatic evangelism and neo-Pentecostal churches where the prosperity gospel is preached, uh, where, you know, uh, being the reward for being good isn't later in the afterlife or whatever, but is right now. And if you're, um, if you're being economically successful, you know, if you're, if you're, um, if you're, making money basically if you're making bank that is associated with godliness and if you're not it means that you're not giving enough to the church probably um but that is one way in which kind of religion comes back and is mediated really by by money well look i mean i don't um i don't think it's it's not it's um i don't have any response to this (laughs) I mean, I don't know what, you know, what is it? I'm a bit like George. I'm a bit stumped by the question. It, it, honestly, Markets, it, 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 seems like, it seems like you want us to say something. No, I don't. And... I was, I was, it was a prompt for thought. I mean, I think I've, I've won this, uh, you know, I've won. I've, I've there was put no a question, fight, which Alex. there was. <laughs> I'm victorious. Isn't that in fact a bad question? <laughs> like it's not a riddle where you're trying to like. Okay. Well, listeners, listeners, uh, you guys, if you have any thoughts on this, uh, you know, write in, we're always uh, all ears and we'll discuss it uh, in, uh, in the next episode. So um, I was going to also bring in inflation because that, of course, that is, that is precisely a uh, lack of trust in, in the coin, but. Um, well, I mean, so money, you know, money, you put the, you know, you've raised this point about whether we trust money. And obviously, many of us don't, right? Which is why you have kind of the cryptocurrency boom, in which you know, I mean, not just kind of um, freaks and weirdos, but kind of ordinary people who uh, bought into it and have lost their life savings because you know they buy the argument that fiat money is essentially um, you know kind of has nothing at its at its uh, at the bottom, and that going off the gold standard was some you know enormous kind of elite conspiracy or something. Um, so clearly, like, there is no trust in money either, which isn't to say there isn't a trust in the market, because there's trust in the idea of, um, uh, you know, I suppose, uh, transactional interactions that are in some way kind of uh, contractually bound and in which both parties benefit. I think to that degree, people still have an ideal of um, of that as a model for social life. But this is this is so just to, on crypto and, and the blockchain. This is kind of a a solution to the the problem of trust in a completely different way. Because yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's it's make it's a kind of magic bullet solution in one sense that it's we don't need trust because everything is recorded, everything is made public, and and so you don't need to make any judgments about the trustworthiness, the the probity or lack thereof of any business partners because literally you can go to the ledger but and that it's all is there. trust but that is trust i mean that that is putting your trust in an abstract entity or process which fills in for the lack of trust that you might have for your you know business partner or whatever um yeah no, i think i think trust it removes the uncertainty it removes that which which trust must be must be based on or this is the this is the kind of um i i at least as far as i understand it the the, the selling point of cryptocurrency that you don't need to have any f- faith in like what the other people you're contracting with are doing. No, because... but you have to trust the blockchain instead, right? You trust the blockchain. You don't have to trust the people yeah. that you're dealing with. I mean, I trust the blockchain as far as I understand cryptography and all that sort of thing and, and maths, but I, which is in this particular area, not, not a great deal. So maybe, yeah, maybe you are right. Um, that that would be the yeah weak inductive knowledge that that Giddens talks about. Like it's worked up till now, so I guess it'll work in the future. 
I want to finish this off by bringing in the question of the state, because again, this refers a little bit back to emergency politics, and maybe we've already kind of discussed this um, to, to a certain degree in this episode, but um, we talk a lot, obviously, on the podcast about declining regime legitimacy. Um, it's something that kind of stares us in the face. And uh, I think we can call back to uh, to the time when we discussed a uh, a, a long essay by the Endnotes Collective on this, and they kind of look at you know declining turnout and various other indices which demonstrate declining regime legitimacy. And I don't think any of us would deny that that is a major phenomenon today, right? Um, but uh, at the same time, the state itself is rarely put into question, not just kind of the state's legitimacy, but I think the question of the state itself is naturalized that, you know, the, other than maybe kind of l- radical libertarians or something, um, the, by and large, I think most of society has kind of naturalized the state as, not, as an entity. It's not a paradox any more than the idea that people kind of buying into Bitcoin, you know, is um, is a paradox. You don't believe in the existing government, but you do believe that we need some kind of um, centralized form of political order. I don't see there. Is, not, I don't see that those two things necess- are mutually inconsistent. Not necessarily centralized form of political order. It makes me think of another um, sociologist, this Diego Gambetta, who his explanation of the Sicilian mafia is that basically, if people don't trust the state, they still need something which un which underlies um, transactions of various sorts. Yeah. So what you do is, if you make a business deal with somebody, you agree to give two percent, five percent of that business deal to Pepe, and if either of you break the uh, contract, then he'll break your legs, and you both kind of think, well, kind of don't like this, but the, um, the Italian state at the time is too too remote. You can't, you don't have any any trust in in this institution. So you're going to make your own uh, and decentralized political slash violent um, solution to this to this problem. So I think yeah. it is a, you know, th- there are other other social phenomena which I guess could be explained this way. No, that's a really good point actually, and I, I was just looking through um, another book in the additional readings. It's uh, actually Francis Fukuyama, uh, his book on trust, which I don't think is very good in general, um, but he makes the point about low trust societies and takes Italy as the example, that in these low trust societies, kind of familial and kinship relationships are more important, right? Because you don't trust uh, the state and whatever. And this would be familiar to anyone, um, not, you know, not just in Italy, but in kind of the semi-periphery everywhere. Um, and, but it's that, that the other authorities that come in are delinquent authorities. It's things like the mafia, um, which kind of pick up the slack. So I think there's always an element of looking for some authority in which to place trust, because I think it's, it is kind of fungible. Um, that it, trust, it's the ultimate non-fungible. No, it's the ultimate fungible token, I guess. Um, it's an FT. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that it ends up finding other repositories. And I guess the, the concern would be, especially as we've discussed the you know, phenomenon of competing emergency politics and the sense that someone needs to take authority, but that we don't want to give legitimacy to any determinate kind of institution that currently exists, that that opens the way for a, a much more authoritarian form of rule. I think, you know, that if, if we're looking, if we're looking for, for some authority, we're not willing to seize it ourselves and we don't trust existing authorities that creates this, a vacuum. Um, and in the context of a, a real emergency, uh, or at least something which is very urgent, which people might make into an emergency, um, that does um, open up the possibility for something much more dictatorial. I don't know what form that would take. 
Um, I don't know, that's going to end up as a closing thought unless you guys want to take this up. No? Okay, so we're closing on dictatorship? Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> listeners, let us know what you thought of this. We'll discuss uh, your questions and comments on this at the next Beating Club. Um, I hope you um, have enjoyed this, have taken something from this. Um, next time, um, I'm sure this will be popular, we're discussing conspiracy theory. So kind of takes on very nicely from what we've been discussing so far. Uh, it is Timothy Melly's Empire of Conspiracy, The Culture of Paranoia in Post-War America. And the reading there is the preface, the introduction, the epilogue, we'll be posting that. But I think the book as a whole is pretty good. So it's worth, um, if you're interested in reading as a whole. So we'll be back in a month's time with that. Um, but we are back with uh, more episodes over the course of the month. Uh, plenty of stuff on, on Brazil as we look forward to the first round of the election on October 2nd. We're talking to Branko Milanovic and much more else besides. Okay, that's it. Should we say bye? Bye. 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 It's good. It's good post holiday energy. Bye. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>